Ethan, you ready Ready to talk about the resolution for NSDA Nationals 2019? I'm so ready. I love this resolution. I saw the resolution the other day. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's on revolution. It's on violence. What's not to love? This is such a good one. Oh my goodness. And I can only imagine how awesome is going to be, would it be if next year we actually are at NSDA Nationals with three, four, maybe six people from our school who qualify for nationals. That would be the coolest thing ever. I would love to take the trip and go to nationals. Oh, my goodness. It'd be great. Best so trip we'll, ever. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, well, before we get to our resolution, we've got some email feedback. Uh, so we had a, a listener who signed his email as Dr. Phil sent us a couple pieces of feedback. And uh, we're, we're, we're starting. We've got some feedback to do and uh, a few Facebook shout outs. So, Let's do it. Ethan, what, what email feedback did we get? Dr. Phil really liked the interview with Megan Bagwell. He, she, or he thought that Megan was very professional and recognizing Dr. Edwards' hard work towards her doctorate degree. Excellent. I, I've been a fan for years of people actually using the titles that accurately label people's distinctions in society. So I'm, I'm quite happy that uh, Dr. Edwards is, uh, is now the title rather than Mrs. Edwards. And uh, listeners do be on the lookout for an interview with her coming up uh, in a couple weeks because uh, I got the chance to sit down with her just this past week and discuss why exactly she values debate here in our school and why she's such a big fan of what we do. What did you hear on Facebook? Well, on Facebook, uh, so I had I, I put up a, a bit of a shout out challenge. I promised friends who commented on the on the resolution that I would mention them. So uh, I had an old friend named David who uh, said when he read this resolution, he was like, "Oh yes, I can finally put in place my plans to conquer the world." What? No. See, this is a little bit of a story. Back, back once upon a time, back, way back in this would have been 2010. David was a freshman at Hillsdale College, and I was a junior. We eventually became pretty good friends. And one day, I noticed that he had left a folder behind in the library. And I opened up the folder. Inside the folder was the Constitution of, I kid you not, New Byzantium. What? Constantinople, which uh, today is the city of Istanbul. Yeah. Well, see, David had already worked out a full 20-page plan for how he was going to conquer Constantinople, launch his new Byzantine empire, and when he saw this resolution, he was like, yes, uh, there's political oppression there. I can, that's going to justify me putting my new constitution into action. Was this like a class assignment or he just made plans to take over, a certain, over Constantinople, just out of the Oh, this, this was just him having fun. He just he, he worked that in detail. Uh, we, we, I gave him quite a hard time about it for, for well over a year. Side gigs, start a new nation, no biggie. Why not? I mean, uh, all the people who did start New Nations, they, they, they were relatively ordinary people, too. So who knows? Maybe, maybe he'll make it happen. I had a buddy named John who uh, he, uh, he said the biggest issue here, and I, I tend to agree, is going to be that we have to define the word oppression. Yeah, that's going to be a tough one. But we'll walk through that. We will. We'll get it done. We will. Uh, a couple, the last two guys I'll mention both had uh, actual strategy suggestions. A friend of mine named Blake, is a, uh, he's a Ph.D. student in communications at UNC Chapel Hill. And he suggested that really his first thought looking at this was that every political regime begins with some sort of political oppression. So what this resolution really does is justify an ongoing cycle of oppression revolution, oppression revolution. So people should really draw on Nietzsche for this kind of social critique. Okay. And lastly, 
Uh, an old friend named Ben Finnegan came up with an idea that you should basically run topicality on whatever AF comes up with because there's no way to really do this and, and really stay inside the bounds of the resolution. So it's tough to embrace the affirmative side on violent revolutions. Oh, well, I think it's going to be. That's going to be one of the big things that we have to have to get at. Get I to. love Facebook shout-outs. These are awesome. We need to do more of these. We do, and hopefully those who listen to us will uh, find us on Twitter or Instagram. Ethan, where can they do that if they want to follow us and uh, maybe get themselves a shout-out on the show? If you want to get a shout-out on the show, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at what's the res underscore, and if we're doing any more shout-out challenges, we'll be sure to to shout you out on the show. Um, and if you want to email us, you can do that at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com with any feedback, any questions, any comments. We'd love to hear from you. Well, and just to keep everything consistent, we really should do our standard intro bit. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and a debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Ethan Delves, and we're going to be discussing the uh, NSDA Nationals Lincoln-Douglas Resolution for 2019, Resolved. Violent revolution is a just response to political oppression. What a great resolution. And I'm glad to be back, too. It's been a long time since we've had a duo episode. That's true. We've got Noah recording today, so it's really back where we started back in February and, and March. But, but now we're here in May. It's, it's very exciting. Awesome. Uh, oh, Ethan, do, uh, do quickly update us on baseball, because if I remember correctly, we did promise a few episodes back that if things were going well, we would tell listeners how baseball was going. Right. Thales Academy baseball team is doing pretty well. We've made a huge jump from where we come in previous seasons. We have a winning record, and we are going into the bracket for state playoffs. So come Monday, our last week of baseball, and if we make it all the way to states, we'll be playing on Saturday. Well, that's going to be very exciting. Hopefully, we'll, we'll come back and have to let our listeners know if Thales is the new state champion for uh, high school baseball. Well, Ethan, uh, give, us, give us your thoughts on the resolution. What do you see just initially in this resolution? What's going on? My favorite thing about this resolution is a just response, which means that someone has to establish a certain type of justice, which we did, or you did, a previous episode on about the different types of justice. And it's going to be really special in this resolution because you're going to have to pick one and stick with it and fully embrace it. So you not only have to defend the side that says violent resolute the part about violent revolution and what that entails, but how that's a specific, a specific type of just response to political oppression. So there's really two things that the affirmative and negative are going to have to focus on. We, granted, they have to focus on all the terms in any type of debate, but having to pick what violent revolution is and what justice means in the same debate is a lot of defining to do. So definitions are heavy. In this I, I completely agree with you, Ethan. I think the definitions are going to be the most important part of this, of this resolution, of this debate, because really we've got three paired terms that we'll need to walk through here in just a moment. But we've got violent revolution, we've got just response, and then we've got political oppression. This is insane. This, I've, I've never seen such a definitions-ridden debate before in LD. Well, LD is usually pretty hard on definitions, too. It's true. It's fitting that this is for a national tournament. So this really is going to be the best of the best in high school debate. And folks are really going to have to show their ability to weave philosophy and current events and contemporary politics and theory, weave it all together for a compelling case. I will be watching this on YouTube, for sure. Well, when the final debate comes out. Yep. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to find access to the, the final round. That'd be, that'd be something to watch. Oh, yeah. Well, before we get too deep into it, I, I probably should mention that uh, most of the background reading I did for this, uh, for this episode was confined to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's entry on revolution. 
They have a really helpful article by a professor named Alan Buchanan looking at the way revolution works in terms of politics, and particularly he focuses on the moral aspect of revolution. And by the end of the article, he, fo he explains that really this is the current cutting edge of moral philosophy. Revolution is the current cutting edge of moral philosophy. Does that mean it's the most effective form of usurping political oppression is what he's saying or what is he no, saying? No, not, not necessarily. That at least is not his argument. That may be the case, but that's not what he's suggesting. He's suggesting that instead of this idea of, on the affirmative side, revolution being a just response, or I'm sorry, violent revolution being a just response, that's really where, that's the current spot where philosophy has stopped. Oh, the okay. traditional perspective is that violent revolution is generally not a good thing. And that this is not something that we can call just and right and that we can morally affirm. Is it possible to tie revolution or violent revolution into a different philosophy and have that philosophy justify it just by the way it's built? Maybe if um, revolution would benefit the majority, it could tie into utilitarianism? Or you could, it, is there no spot in philosophy where violent revolution fits? Well, there's certainly what he's getting at is that there's there's not as if you can currently go, you can go to the philosophy shelf or to uh, a certain theorist on the internet and see where they're going to necessarily endorse violent revolution as the appropriate moral response. But he thinks that this is something that needs to be done because uh, he argues that their political oppression has gotten worse and worse in recent years, and it certainly seems that revolution is imminent and is in many cases necessary. But it's as if we're really debating about something that philosophers have not yet created the frameworks within which to work. This is a good move on behalf of the NSDA, a good resolution, because there's, there's philosophy, but there's not a distinct place to run to for this kind of resolution. Uh, and one other thing that's probably worth mentioning is that uh, he argues there's not a whole lot of literature on the morality of just revolution, but there's a ton of academic work that's been done on the ideas of civil war and violence. Hmm. So there's some places, I think that gives access to both sides to certain kinds of information. Certainly your affirmative side could be on the lookout for where are there some civil war approaches that could seem to come in to help the affirmative. Well, Neg really ought to be on the lookout for where is affirmative pulling in civil war information that does not apply to revolution? Hmm. So you're going to have to be able to separate instances of civil war and instances where oppression is involved and then one side has to usurp the other. Yes, and whether where how, how exactly are revolution and civil war different from each other? There's That's, a lot of pieces to tie together for this one. There really are. So let's, let's really get into kind of our first big segment on let's this episode. It. Uh, looking at defining the term. So, uh, Ethan, what, what would you see going on in that term, violent revolution? Start us off there. Violent revolution primarily includes an internal conflict. So if it's external, it's not considered a revolution because that's, pretty, that's either a, a war going on in between two countries or two nations. So revolution has to be confined to internal sources. So it's not like the United States invading Venezuela or anything like that. That would not be considered a revolution. So primarily internal is my first thought. But the Venezuelan people rising up to overthrow current President Maduro, that would be something much more like a violent revolution. Exactly. But the United States military going and intervening, that would be almost a, something like a foreign military power imperializing Venezuela and really robbing the Venezuelan people of their own authority. Right, yeah, because it's an outside source. But the Venezuelan people going against the Venezuelan government, how do you separate that from civil war? And how do you call that a revolution? What would you say? 
Well, see, I would look at that as part of the uh, part of the distinction there is that a civil war is uh, often looking at the armed conflict between two parties, and it's almost as if we're changing the person who holds the power okay. in a way. Uh, whereas revolution is uh, has a particularly uh, this probably might be a good way, place to go and get into the definition of the word revolution. The word revolution is stronger than that. Revolution is looking at a way to change the entire form of government of a country. Does something make civil war more moral than violent revolution, and that's why the affirmative would instinctually run to it? I don't know that that's the case. I don't know that civil war is inherently more moral, uh, except that the civil war is more limited in what a civil war is really trying to attain. A civil war is not trying to change the form of government, but rather the people or the policies that that government is is doing. It's more... Um, Sometimes in uh, my history classes, I've taught various civil wars through the analogy of a medieval joust or, or really a trial by combat. Right. Where in the, mid in the medieval era in Europe, they would often settle an important question by appointing two challengers to fight it out. And they argued whoever wins the fight it, uh, determines the truth of the question. So in that case, the, in the American Civil War, for example, the Civil War was really trying the question, two questions, I think, the question of states' rights, whether states have the right to leave the union that they say they formed, or also the question of slavery. And really, we answered that question uh, negatively in both cases. No, states can't leave the union. And secondly, no, states can't have slaves and people can't own slaves. And that question, those questions were answered through the death of somewhere around 300,000 American lives fought on the battlefield. So we're looking at the difference between two parties in a civil war, jousting, if you will, between changing a policy and then a, a minority group revolting against, or maybe not necessarily a minority group, but a lower group revolting against the oppressor to flip the entire script. Yes, and that, that might be a, this might be a helpful spot for a good quote from the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Let's hear it. And uh, for anybody who's interested in these, we will put these up on our Medium page for our, uh, uh, for, with the show notes for this episode. So the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy uh, puts it this way. Revolution is commonly understood to have two components, rejection of the existing government's authority and an attempt to replace it with another government, where both involve the use of extra constitutional means. On this reading, revolution and rebellion share a negative aim. The wholesale rejection of government's authority, but revolution includes in addition a positive aim to institute a new government in place of the one it has destroyed. So this helps affirmative out a little bit because you see the, the purpose behind revolution is for a, a sort of change or as this quote describes it, a positive aim. I love that word extra constitutional means. That's really interesting that they chose that wording. Well, I think that's also key because that means we're not talking about anything from inside the current, inside the status quo. A revolution, we're not talking about a surprise constitutional elected victory where a group comes out of nowhere and manages to win an election. Instead, we're talking about a group of people who literally overthrow violently the current system of government and they put something new in place, some new person in which power is concentrated. One last thing worth noting about the first half of the resolution is the word violent next to the word revolution, because this is really an extension of the novice topic about civil disobedience, except now we're just talking full-on violence. So civil disobedience being the novice topic is justified in society, going all the way to violence being morally justified under political oppression. So those, I think those two are related, and it's kind of cool that they're related between novice and varsity, but now we're just talking a full-on embracing of violent revolution on the affirmative side. 
Yeah, that's that's fascinating because the that that's I th- I think that's gonna that's gonna create part of the what strikes me as a cognitive dissonance with this resolution. I think affirmative teams are gonna have a particularly difficult time really owning what the resolution is saying in the affirmative. Yeah. So what burdens would you say that the affirmative has just kind of going off of that? What does the affirmative have to do in order to pose an effective case that you think would help them win any round? Well, really, I think this means affirmative has to actually advocate violent revolution. Um, We'll talk a little bit more after we kind of run through just response and political oppression about some other components of that. But I think the hardest thing for affirmative teams to do is going to be to actually own what the resolution is talking about. Um, I think I'm thinking this primarily because uh, last month we went to a novice tournament here in North Carolina. The that drugs was, one. Yeah, the drugs one. And uh, part of what fascinated me about we got to watch the final round together. And do, uh, Ethan, do you remember what was uh, what the the problem I had with that final round? Is that the negative team would not fully embrace the government's ability to shut people down. As far as drugs go. I I judged five rounds of of debate that day, and in no case was anyone willing to actually affirm the negative burden that the people who break the law should be judged by the justice system of this country. Why do you think people are so reluctant to fully embrace a side that doesn't necessarily sound the best when you say it out loud? I think in part, uh, there's several factors there, but the only one I want to mention at the moment is that really uh, we have a, a... disability to actually talk about harsh consequences in public discourse. We don't want to talk about the fact that often when people choose things, there are real consequences attached. We don't like the fact that if you break the law, you are likely to actually pay severe penalties. We have somehow managed to so overemphasize kindness in, a, in our society that we want to assume that just because there are a few people who are legitimately enslaved by their drug addiction and who would be helped by some sort of uh, program to help them get off of their drug addiction, well, that therefore there are no people who are actually willingly partaking in drug culture. So what you're saying is that we've sort of disassociated ourselves with the the more difficult things to talk about for the purpose of beating around the bush and not, while it doesn't get the full point out, it sounds safer and it feels safer because we can push away the consequences as far as an intellectual discussion goes. I I think that's right. And in terms of this resolution, uh, it, it has a lot to do with the fact that Really, we are part of what is uh, sometimes called the liberal international political order, where in the aftermath of World War II, because of how bad World War II was, the political order that arose after 1945 is all about maintaining peace and maintaining the status quo and using interstate, intrastate, national and international diplomacy to solve problems rather than using the tools of violence because... By 1945, there is a sort of consensus that now all of a sudden violence can go far, much further than people had previously suspected. And we could have death tolls in the hundreds of thousands and in the millions, rather than death tolls in the hundreds and thousands. So because everyone debating this has grown up in that particular uh, political and moral order, it's going to be an, it's going to take an extra step to really embrace what this resolution is talking about. I think consequentialism is going to be a really harsh value in this case for the case against violent revo- uh, yeah, violent revolution. It's going to at least sound really really good when someone puts consequentialism in their case because then death counts matter and the destruction matters and all of those numbers matter. Not like they don't matter already, but if I can just 
kind of foresee that as a value being put into a case and it really being effective in a resolution like this. I think that's a that's a that's a really good point for the nag. Now, so I guess my my first real piece of advice for the affirmative side and for really for everybody as they're thinking about how to write both cases, affirmative embrace your side strongly. Don't back away from the fact that the resolution is calling you to actually affirm political violence. Don't run to the shelter of running a K and just rejecting the resolution. Instead, actually embrace the call of the resolution and run that with strength and vigor and find the arguments. I completely agree. Well, Ethan, what do you what do you make of terrorism as part of this discussion? Does the does the affirmative position uh, allow for terrorism? Terrorism was kind of a weird thought at first, but as I thought about it a little bit, I would have to say no because of the quote that you said earlier where there's the goal to replace with a new type of government or a newer system from the oppressor to and and again, when you look at the oppressor and the oppressed, those groups are not as clearly defined in a terrorist sort of situation as they would be in a different one. And secondly, it would be that the goal of a violent revolution is to replace what was once above. And I think terrorism doesn't, doesn't adequately meet that goal in order to be considered part of a violent revolution. It is certainly violent, but I wouldn't categorize it as a violent revolution necessarily. I think that's part of the distinction in terms there, where revolution really has that idea of uh, flipping over what is currently in place Whereas terrorism is more looking at how do we raise awareness of some something through violence, almost through martyrdom of a sort. Do you, by any chance, know any of the etymology surrounding the word revolution? Because I can see some interesting things being found there, but I have no idea. Well, that you're, that's, a, that's a good question. I was actually talking to one of our uh, Latin teachers here at school yesterday about this, and he helped me with the Latin, and I, I promised him I would butcher it on the show, and he told me to try not to, but... Here we go. Uh, the word revolution comes from the Latin verb revolvere. Uh, it looks like revolver. Yeah, you totally didn't butcher that. Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> so, Dr. Begley, I'm sorry. Uh, but revolvere, uh, it, it has the idea of literally rotating around. Uh, Ethan, you've had more Latin than I have. Can you pronounce it better? Revolvera, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I can't do it. Latin was two years ago. Yep, yep. How quickly it flees. Just ask but, the middle schoolers. Yep. The, uh, the whole idea there is we're going around something, and the, the etymology began to shift in the aftermath of what's called the Copernican Revolution, where Copernicus uh, argued that actually we had vastly misunderstood the way the solar system really works where the medievals and early moderns thought that the uh, uh, thought that everything rotated around the earth copernicus argued it's the other way around everything goes around the sun well this this scientific revolution really gave rise to the idea actually no we are just one thing rotating around the sun and the 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 total changeover in perspectives on the world really shaped the meaning of the word revolution so that now it has this connotation of that sharp of a change in a political sense. I think another place where terrorism would kind of fall down as, as far as pertaining to this resolution would be a just response when you relate it to the just response part and the latter part of the resolution. Because terrorism is often associated with this, with this mass murder and its, its goals are not as 
and not as redeeming, I would say, as a violent revolution where the revolution has a goal and an end goal to redeem something and to make something better, or at least in most cases. I think we'll have some examples later on. Mm -hmm. But what, what are your thoughts on just response? How do, how do we go about attacking that term and, and defining just? Because I know justice has a lot of different definitions, and you, you certainly have to choose one. It's almost like choosing a value. It, it seems like it. It's as if people use this word all the time without bothering to stop and think, which kind of justice am I talking the about? The classical definition I've heard is render each his due. And that's pretty much how everyone's done it in all cases. And they seem to get away with it pretty well because no one can really question that. Well, just as a quick side note that uh, doesn't show up in our previous episode about justice, which if anybody wants to pause and go listen to may be helpful here. That's episode 14. That's uh, looking at classical utilitarian and contemporary views of justice. The uh, question, that, that's actually where Plato begins in the Republic with the first definition of justice that Socrates discusses. And he, uh, let, let, let's play Socrates for just a moment. And let, let, do you accept that definition, give each one what he's due? Sure. Well, let's say, for example, one day I lend you my pocket knife. Okay. And so, and I come to you two days later and say, hey, Ethan, I need my pocket knife back. What is justice in that moment? To give you the pocket knife. Okay, now let's complicate the scenario just a little bit. Okay. Let's say you know that I have recently been, uh, I, I, I've recently tried to harm myself and take my own life, and that if I have a pocket knife, I am going to slit my own wrist. And now I come to you and say, Ethan, can I have my pocket knife? What is justice? I guess to give you the pocket knife, and because I have to render you your due because your I guess it's your own choice to do whatever you want with yourself in that situation. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't give it to you. Like, sorry, justice falls. But so you would, you would. Now, well, then that really that. Uh, now, th this is Socrates' uh, use of the reductio ad absurdum strategy to say that definition of justice may not actually be sufficient. So rather than him saying that you would just choose the unjust thing, Socrates would come back and say, well, actually, that probably means our definition of justice needs work. I would say that render each is due is a really basic definition, but and it's too broad and needs to be narrowed down a bit to really get to the essential part. But I don't think all of the different types of justice are so far separated that this that this theme is not consistent throughout them. Oh, that's that's certainly true, and we, we don't need to track down that one any further. Yeah, let's. Uh, I mean, there's in that episode. I, I think I went over uh, three or four different views. There's the utilitarian view that really says anything that causes the least pain and leads to happiness is just. There's a guy named Friedrich Hayek who said that who really his model of justice looked a little bit like a referee who establishes the rules of a game. Then there was a guy named John Rawls who uh, he looked at justice as really the idea of what what would you make, what are the rules you would make for a society so that everyone would have a fair slice of society if you didn't know where you would be in that society. Now, all of those are different views of justice that, that really could come into this. Uh, so if we had to pick a kind of justice, um, Ethan, what kind of justice would you run if you were gonna if you were looking at this for your case? So, I I kind of like two of these. the The utilitarian one just interests sorry it interests me because it's a very simple view of justice, and I think unfortunately it's a little bit too simple, and it doesn't account for everything that could happen in the debate, and it narrows it down to something that's way too convenient for either side to use. But utilitarianism has always been a favorite value of mine, just because it's a really interesting one that I like to read about. I think the justice as a referee is the best way to go. Well, and that, that really is, that, that has a lot of potential there. I, I think Hayek gives a, a lot of interesting ground. 
But I think ultimately, as we're thinking this through, whatever we decide is, to, is a just response, whatever measurement that's dealing with, it has to be tied to a certain political theory of authority. Because how we, how we understand justice and how justice is tied to the authority that the state has is really going to explain whether or not violent revolution is actually a just response. I think this is the best way to go as far as justice as a referee goes because it establishes that justice does not always default to one team or one side. That justice can, is, could be, this could be just in this scenario or this scenario. It's not about if you're the oppressed or you're the oppressor, but I think it digs deeper into the situation and you can really get to the heart of examples with, this, with using this form of justice. Well, and, and going that route is really going to mean that affirmative has to show that justice has in some way been violated by the status quo. Right. Which is really where that political oppression is going to come in. And doesn't that change for every country that you go to? Because if one state is oriented a particular way, say you had maybe a, a really, really Marxist sort of state, and then it was, it was violating the justice that the people deserve, or it was violating the people, but then the way that state is oriented wouldn't let that definition operate, would it? Because then it was still in coincidence with the doctrine that it runs off of. Well, I think that ultimately depends on the source of where, where the authority of the state comes from. I mean, so if you're talking about a Marxist state, like, for example, either uh, contemporary China, which is not terribly Marxist, but certainly communist, or perhaps North Korea or maybe Cuba, all of those are various strands of communism. Well, in that case, the authority of the state derives from a previous revolution. And they are open, and then they, they really open themselves to another revolution that might further the ultimate communist goal of bringing about a communist civilization. So where's the safest source of authority in a, in a system of government that would, that would keep a violent resolution or a violent revolution safe on the affirmative side and justified? That is the question. I don't know that I have a great answer for that. Um, I'll, I'll at least make an attempt. Um, I think one of possibly your best bet is to go to uh, some of the theory developed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He argued that the state ultimately gets its right to govern and its right to exercise force from what he called the general will, which is, but the, the trouble there is that Rousseau argues the general will is ultimately expressed through the state. So you have to garner, you have to have some way of showing that the revolution actually has more of the people's will behind it than the state that is acting, okay. if you want to draw from Rousseau. I think that's a good attempt. Good answer. Well, and on another, you could also go to John Locke and the uh, idea of the social compact. Uh, Ethan, are you familiar with the social compact theory? I've heard of the social compact theory, but I haven't read it up on that very much now. So Locke argues that uh, people have rights, first and foremost, just because they're people, but that they compact together to form society, and they give some of their rights that kind of make society work. And then because of that, then the people maintain their rights. Their rights aren't given by the state. Their rights predate the state. They exist before the state exists. Okay. And so because of that, then... Uh, the Locke social compact could also be another way to say that the, the revolution could justify the revolution. If you can show that the rights of the people have been violated and the people through the revolutionary movement are breaking the social compact in order to form a new social compact. The, uh, 
the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy kind of picks up the same argument, uh, puts it this way. Uh, Locke says on one interpretation that the people at their own discretion may rightly revoke the trusteeship, that is, dissolve the government even in the absence of the state's violation of natural rights or failure to protect them. They could, for example, dissolve the government in order to form a new one that they simply thought was more efficient. Locke lays a lot of that out in his second treatise on government, which was written in 1689. But I think that could provide a really good grounding for, uh, for the affirmative here. Yeah, but Locke says revolution, but not violent revolution. Do you think he was referring to violent in his, in his quote? I suspect no. I, I rather suspect Locke had kind of a, uh, he had a happier view of human nature than some other theorists. Uh, his contemporary, a guy named Thomas Hobbes, uh, had a much more negative view of human nature. Uh, but Locke sort of envisions that this will happen without violence. So it may be a stretch for affirmative to take Locke and say, oh, well, therefore we can use Locke to say violent revolution is a just response because the people's rights have been violated. But he opens up the door. There, there's some room there, I think, for affirmative to use Locke as ground for their case. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I like John Locke's view, but I think he does have a pretty high view of him, humanity and human nature. He so, does. Um, I don't know. I'm not really sure where violence would fit in there because it's revolution seems justified when the people give the power to the state in order to have an orderly society, you have to relinquish something in order to get more back. But at what point is, is violent revolution justified? Because I can see revolution, but it's definitely difficult to make that step. Well, in that case, uh, you, you actually might like what Karl Marx argues. He seems to have a little bit more simplistic of an analysis. He does, if you, if you take Jordan Peterson's view of, of Karl Marx. If you, For sure. You should definitely go listen to that episode. If you have not heard that episode yet, I'm talking to you listeners. It's a good episode. Um, we did, a, just really quick, we did an episode about Jordan Peterson's debate with Sylvain Zizak um, on capitalism versus Marxism and which one leads to happiness. It's a really awesome episode. We had a lot of fun with it. But yes, Jordan Peterson did reduce... Mark, um, Zizek's views to just the Communist Manifesto, and not even that, just 10, 10 things on the Manifesto. Well, if you take Marx a bit more broadly and a bit more at, at, on his own word, uh, what Marx is doing is he's actually laying out a theory of revolution and arguing that revolution is a necessary engine for propelling human progress. Marx is building on a German philosopher named, uh, named Hegel, Hegel argued that human, pro human history is moving upwards, it's progressing towards the, uh, he argues that eventually this culminates in the, the creation of something he called the world spirit, uh, which some people have said is God, while Hegel never directly says that. So humans become God? No, no, no. It's not that humans become God. For Hegel, humans actually, through their progress, eventually create the possibility of God to be created. Yeah, that's usually how people respond to Hegel. So I don't want to go too deep into Hegel today. He's, he's just, he, he really is one of those philosophers that just gives you a headache. So, but where he comes in for this debate, it might be really helpful for, for the affirmative side, is that revolution is the mechanism for progress. And that's what Marx picks up on. Because Marx then looks back at human history and he says there are these constant moments in history where people rise up and they overthrow their, the people who are in charge. And in doing so, they create a place for more freedom and more happiness. So I can see violent revolution as a, 
a mechanism for progress, but does that pragmatic aspect of it morally or justify it as far as justice is concerned? Is well, just, if can you justice are, be found in utility? Well, if you are a consistent Marxist, and, and if so, if you were going to do this, you would really need to reject an ideal, an idealistic view of justice. Because Marx is a, he is a dialectical materialist. He believes there is only the physical and the material. These whole abstract notions of justice for Marx are, there's not necessarily a real justice. So perhaps the utilitarian view of justice would be best suited for a Marxist framework like that. Yes, I think that, that, might, that might work there. Okay. So all of those give, give pretty good ground, uh, I think, for affirmative. Well, let's get into our last big tricky oh, man. term. This is a tough one. Okay, Ethan, start us off on political oppression. Political what on earth oppression. is happening here? Okay, so the the burden here is to prove that political oppression is happening, and I would even say to what extent it's happening and where it's happening. There's just so many factors that you can go into here. Like, what does it mean? It can mean legal discrimination, voting restrictions, like maybe even passing a test or showing ID or unable to own property. There's countless things that this is basically saying a government imposes things upon its citizens. At what point is it considered political oppression? Because we, I mean, we have to follow a law code, right? Like we have laws here, but we don't consider that really in most cases political oppression because we've given up some of our, our freedom in order to, to have proper restraints on society so that we can flourish in society. What would you say? Where where is the line drawn here, and does it does it ever get drawn in different places? I, I think it does. I think that's where, um, for all that uh, people can prepare as much as they as much as possible, I think that's where this debate is really going to go into a lot of different directions, because how you define political oppression is going to be really interesting. And I think there's there's going to be tempta a temptation for people to uh, run to more subtle political oppressions where they sort of look at uh, maybe there's a uh, there's certainly there's a feminist concept called the glass ceiling right. that could be presented as a form of oppression but it is really hard to prove the glass ceiling and prove that and it's certainly not enshrined in law uh, certainly this where some people may run to LGBTQ uh, type oppressions and exclusions from certain sectors of society but again those are really difficult to prove definitively so I think what you need instead is some clear, objective kind of oppression. And to kind of add on to that, a lot of those examples are relatively modern examples. I think the instinct of the affirmative is going to be to run to historic examples where oppression could just be objectively proven and it's clearly evident. Because the more clearly evident it is, that, gives, that takes away from one of negatives really huge superpowers in this debate, which is disproving that political oppression exists, and now they have to focus on disproving that violent revolution exists, or they're actually going to have to go and weigh their arguments against that of the affirmative, which, is, which almost seems like the last resort in this case, because the negative can disprove to both of those things on the affirmative case, and then they have to get to arguing the argument if it comes to that. So affirmative really has to do a good job establishing a strong argument that fits the terms of the resolution so that the negative has to contend with it. Now, uh, two thinkers that I thought of as you were saying that, that are not on our outline, uh, that uh, certainly folks may want to look at are, are two different. One such historical moment is uh, the Jim Crow South of the uh, of the nineteenth of the nineteen hundreds, 
And then the two responses to that during the Civil Rights Movement was you have, you have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who in his, uh, his uh, letter from a Birm Birmingham jail lays out a vision of nonviolent uh, civil protest and civil disobedience. It's one of the core documents that a lot of folks will look at for the novice resolution. Uh, but I think it comes in here that negative could look at that and say, that's the way to handle this kind of political oppression. But AF could certainly look to Malcolm X and his Black Panther movement, and they may run into issues with whether or not the Black Panther movement counts as more terrorism than political revolution, but it could be those two thinkers, uh, Malcolm X's autobiography might be another good source to look at, those two could give really good ground to both sides to consider how do we make this particular argument. So we're saying that the negative running to examples like the Jim Crow South and saying that civil disobedience is the way to do it is, would you say that that's a unique example that in history, or are there plenty of other examples that the negative could draw on to, to set a more ideal view of revolution and a, a less violent and morally higher way of getting problems solved? Well, I, I thought of two at least. Um, certainly there's, uh, there's one other very famous one from the 1950s, I believe, with Mahatma Gandhi leading uh, a lot of people on what's called the Salt March. And that was, and his protest movement, uh, more again, civil disobedience and a pretty famous example of it with uh, an opposition to the British Empire and securing Indian freedom out of that. A second one I thought it was more recent, and uh, it's coming out of another clear case of political oppression. And that's the case of South Africa and apartheid, where, uh, Ethan, are you familiar with the, the whole apartheid? No, not really. Uh, this, it's an absolutely horrific story, and it's relatively recent. It just ended in, uh, I believe, 1991, but I'd, I'd have to look that date up to be sure. Uh, but over the, uh, the last 50 years or so of the 20th century, the nation of South Africa, which is the southern tip of the African continent, but the nation of South Africa had a complete racial divide uh, between uh, with white people owning property and being the rulers of society and black people not owning property and really being kept in concentration camps sort of environments and uh, being made to serve the white people in South Africa. Where this comes in... I think it really is an interesting case. That would be a very interesting case for NEG to look at because there was a black South African named Nelson Mandela who was an activist, and he was looking for... Uh, he, was, he was part of a movement that had the potential to become violent, but he was thrown in prison, and he was released from prison uh, just at the moment when it seemed that the black South Africans were about to rise up, and uh, we were looking at, like there was going to be uh, a, a bit of racial revenge on white South Africans. But Nelson Mandela rises to this really interesting moment where he steps up as someone who had been in prison for, I think, 15 to 20 years uh, in South Africa for, uh, for, for working against the white government. And he maintains that they cannot take revenge and that the black people in South Africa can't go and kill the white people in South Africa and take their stuff because that would not be just. So instead, he becomes this figure who helps bring their nation more together. I think that shows, that, that at least says to me that there's, violent revolution is not the only way. And it's certainly, the nonviolent options seem far more just than the revolutionary options. And the revolutionary option, and when you brought that up, see, I've heard tidbits of this event, but when you really put it all together in a more whole picture, it almost seems as if the nonviolent revolution would serve to hold a more permanent government after it's taken place, because a violent revolution 
that leaves tension, if you know what I'm saying, because there has been an overthrown party, and that overthrown party is not like they're completely wiped out, at least not in every scenario. So they're still there, but if you have nonviolent revolution, then everybody is more closely glued together. So maybe that's an, another point that we could just that we just thought of for Ned. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, trilogies of plays we actually read here at Thales in ninth grade literature. Uh, do you remember reading uh, the Oresteia by Aeschylus? I do. That's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually reading that right now with a, a student I'm tutoring, and uh, we were just reading Agamemnon, and uh, that, that whole trilogy of plays is marked by a, a crisis in the family of uh, the, the Atreides family in ancient Greek mythology, where they have this endless cycle of revenge and violence, violence and revenge, over and over and over. And the whole point of the trilogy is that finally, they finally break the cycle. And they break the cycle not by seeking revenge and, and finally achieving a final revenge, but rather by the uh, avenging spirits uh, deciding to abandon their quest for vengeance. And it's really a story about the rule of law and justice being better than revenge. Hmm. And I think that too comes into this. I think uh, it's... I know uh, LD folks may not be as interested in uh, literature suggestions for their cases, but I do think that the Oresteia and the work of Aeschylus may very well be an unexpected source for a negative case on, on this resolution. I think Aeschylus is the coolest name ever. <laughs> I still can't spell it. I, I, it's just one of those words I can never spell correctly, but it's a great name. Yeah. If we're looking for any examples of big name revolutions, where should the affirmative look to find a revolution that has clearly objective purposes and you can see oppression and it's, it's less likely to be questioned? Well, I think that's, that's a great question. Let's, let's jump to that in a second. There's one other piece up in our outline I want to get to before we, before we jump there. Okay. Um, so for affirmative, before we kind of shift to examples and, and then we'll, we'll wrap this episode up. For affirmative, uh, when you are looking at this case, I think first and foremost, you have got to have a clear and objective form of oppression because that oppression has to match the level of violence that affirmative is advocating. If we're talking about a subtle, less than obvious, unclear oppression, demanding a violent overthrow to resolve that less than clear, less than universally practiced oppression isn't going to line up. Now, I think there's at least two other questions that AF has to answer, and I don't know that we can answer them on the show, but I think that's first and foremost, does the revolution need to have a measure of success? What do you think, Ethan? Does a revolution have to be possible to succeed for it to be a just revolution? I think in order, in order for a revolution to happen, again, from that quote at the beginning of the episode, there has to be an end goal, and that end goal is to replace what was currently or what was before at the top. So if I think if the goal of the revolution is sound and the goal is to replace what was at the top, it can be a just revolution. But if it didn't work, I don't think the consequences really affect the justice of, of what happened. So you would separate those two then? You would, not, you would see that as being different from each other? I could be persuaded with a good example, but upon a first glance, that's my, that's okay. my first instinct. Yep. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good thought. I, the second uh, question that affirmative must answer is how on earth will they ensure that what arises next will be better than whatever the revolutionaries overthrew? And this that was one of the problems that Peterson brought up with Marxism, and he was talking about the proletariat and the bourgeoisies. He yep. said, how can you ensure that the proletariat is going to do a better job put in a different position of society? Because they're just as human as the bourgeoisie are, and just literally replacing titles. So what are you going to do? 
It's it's a fair question. I think a fair point. Uh, so I think those are the, those are really the big questions that and positions I'd I'd suggest for AF going going in there. But let's get back to your question from just a moment ago. You were asking about big names of of, of re violent revolutions. Yeah. What comes to mind? Well, the first that comes to mind is one that I'm not sure is a revolution, uh, and that's the American Revolution. What what off what puts you off is that being a revolution or not being a revolution? Well, so I certainly uh, there there's a case to be made that this was the people rising up to revolt against the king and they established a republic or a democracy in place of a monarchy, which seems to fit, and it certainly was violent. Uh, and there's there's uh, traditional warfare and there's guerrilla warfare, so it does work on both those registers. I'm just not sure if it is the total overthrow that really is in this word revolution in the modern sense. I can see that just by looking at one specific area of that, in that the colonies, the goal was to separate themselves from a government rather than replace the government that they were currently under. So I can see how that wouldn't be a revolution. Although it is called the American Revolution, the goal was for separation, not for replacement and living together. Right. I think it's I think it's key there that the the colonies all had an internal system of colonial government that stays in place after the Revolutionary War is concluded. By 1781, you essentially have 13 states that are each governing themselves. Of course, by 1789, they've joined together and formed a new government. But even then, each state maintains its own systems of representation and governorship and all these things. And they still hold to the same system of British common law. They don't reject everything that came before, which is quite different than the other, than the other one, that I, the big one I want to mention. That's the French Revolution. Now, for the French Revolution, uh, just to put some dates on this, that begins in 1789, and I would argue it concludes by 1805. And that was a very violent one. It was. Uh, it, it, it simmered for quite a long time, but in 1789, the French Revolution began in, with riots in the city of Paris. By 1791, the people of Paris, represented through, their, uh, through, through the people they've sent to the National Assembly, uh, behead King Louis XVI and his family. Uh, they're, they're, the, the, royal, the royal family is done for a little bit. But then they hand the power over to another group, and by 1793, Robespierre establishes a time, a group time called the Reign of Terror, where anyone who informs on anyone else for possibly betraying the nation of France is publicly beheaded. Is that where the guillotine became famous? That, that is precisely where the guillotine became famous. And eventually you have the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, and uh, oddly enough, for a while Napoleon obeys the new form of government called the consulship, but eventually he declares himself emperor. And we really functionally have a single rule or a monarch uh, back again. But after Napoleon is defeated at the Battle of Waterloo, we have the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy with King Louis XVIII. So really what we have in the French Revolution is an incredibly chaotic time that ultimately doesn't last for terribly long. Uh, Ethan, do you know anything about the, the nation of Haiti today? Right next to Cuba, yep. the Haitian Revolution. That, yep. I think that's a good example. It, it really is. The, uh, so while France is in turmoil, uh, 1789-1805, the Haitian Revolution uh, happens almost within those days. At the same time. This is a crazy time for violent revolutions. Uh, it really is. I mean, and especially, so Haiti was a colony of France at the time, and it's one of the places of some of the most despotic slavery, uh, or rule of slaves in, uh, in the Caribbean. 
And, but while the nation of France is in turmoil, in 1791, you get the beginnings of the Haitian Revolution, and there's this series of slave revolts. Uh, by 1804, Haiti declares their own, uh, they declare their own independence, and, uh, but the trouble is, they're in, because they were a nation of slaves, they have almost no economic basis to, from which to build a nation. And the article I was looking at today at least maintained that the Haitian poverty today is probably a direct result of the, of the poverty that they were in when they began. They've never really gotten out of that. So, so would you count it as a revolution? Does the replacement aspect still, still fit? Oh, yeah, even yeah, yeah. The replacement fits because they do govern themselves. What strikes me as very interesting is that it's not that it's that great. Hmm. Uh, and, and with the one exception of the American Revolution, which I don't think is a revolution, none of these revolutions go particularly well. Well, let's get to the 20th century. Uh, I assume you've heard of the Bolshevik Revolution. I have. It's the, uh, that eventually lets uh, Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin uh, and, uh, and uh, Vladimir Lenin uh, declare, pro start a new communist Russia with the, leading to the USSR. But the Bolshevik Revolution is this rising up of the people to overthrow the Romanov czars, uh, or the Romanov family, the last czar of Russia. And uh, it, it, in bloody violence, it leads to the communist, to communist Russia, which is, inaugurates a, a horrific 80-year period for Russia. So this still isn't the best outcome. Nope, this, this is not a great outcome for the Russian people. Do we have um, any good examples of violent revolutions that have a good outcome? I don't. I don't know if you do, but I certainly don't. The last one on my list is uh, bringing us closer to the present. That's 1979 with the Iranian Revolution. This one's kind of odd that it's on this list because all the other ones are really political revolutions. The Iranian Revolution is both political and religious in the sense that uh, Iran or uh, ancient day Persia at that point was a secular kingdom, but the Iranian Revolution was a, a rising up of the Islamists in the, in the nation to uh, through the Iranian guard to proclaim a new nation that was going to be a theocratic Muslim nation ruled by the Ayatollahs or uh, uh, high-ranking Islamic clerics. I mean, priests just doesn't quite fit the term there, but they're, they're, the, uh, they're, they're the religious rulers of the Islamic world. Do you think a revolution has to have a good outcome or an outcome that was better than the previous situation? Well, I do think that matters for evaluating the justness of the revolution. So either of those could work to justify justice? Or to uh, well, they're at, justice? Least gonna, they're at least going to come near. I, I, still, I have a lot of trouble with even trying to figure out how on earth a violent revolution can be justified. Uh, I, I, I don't really know that it can. I can only see the consequentialist approach where the consequences were better than the previous situation, so therefore it was justified. Well, I mean, I, I, I can see that argument. Uh, and, and to get there, though, we're going to either, either find some new examples or, uh, or, or simply kind of hold to the, uh, the, the typical socialist line. No one else has done it right yet until us. But we <laughs> will do it right. Oh, man. Oh, maybe, maybe that's how we should go. Well, uh, Ethan, what, what, uh, what values would you encourage affirmative to consider and, and why? The most provocative phrase in this resolution is political oppression, I think, because it really gives rise to all of the values. And I would completely harp on the political oppression part. Some values would be equality, liberty, and human dignity are the first that really come to mind. Because when you're thinking of an oppressed group, you're thinking of 
a scenario of redemption and these people coming back revolting even if it takes violence and putting what was into something that's better so there's almost I, I get a sense of redemption in this and making something new, even though in all of the pragmatic examples we've seen of this, we haven't really gotten to that more ideal sense. But the first values I think of are equality, liberty, liberty and human dignity, respecting the human being and, and society and making sure that they're as best off as they can be. So really, affirmative values need to be already orienting towards showing that the political oppression is somehow violating human rights. Yeah, and as far as proving that a good effect comes out of that, good luck. Well, may, and maybe maybe that's off topic because once again, we are not necess- we're, we're in we're in the realm of Lincoln Douglas. Uh, and to tie in yet another uh, previous episode reference, uh, we, we might be in the realm of deontology here. Because we're saying that violent revolution is a just response to political oppression, maybe all we need to focus on on AF is that violent revolution, rather than looking at the consequences that come from it. I think a good place to look is in the word just. I think if you define justice justice correctly, maybe in the referee sense we were talking about earlier, or the utilitarian sense, depending on what side you're on, if you relate your arguments close enough to the theory then the examples, while they do bolster your case, you won't get into a really nitty-gritty example debate. Actually, I think you will get into a nitty-gritty example debate because that happens in NSDA a lot. But um, if you tie it closely to the theory, your argument can stand stronger than if you kind of let that slide throughout the round and you didn't define justice as well as you could have. Well, fortunately for AF, I know we've been presenting this as if uh, AF doesn't have a ton of resources to go for. I did find maybe more than I expected to when I went hunting for, for resources. One of those resources I'll mention is a is an anarchist Russian theorist who is very he is uh, thinks violence is a very important av- uh, avenue towards uh, creating an anarchic state. Uh, this theorist's name is Mikhail Bakunin. Marxist.org. Yep, uh, they have a good bio for about him. That's uh, and and he has written several books that uh, are, are are available in English. He escaped from communist Russia and eventually li- lived in England for several years, and that's where he did a lot of his theoretical work. Uh, here's one quote that may help just uh, illustrate Bakunin's uh, effectiveness. With a successful revolution, violence, Bakunin explained, should be directed towards destroying institutions, not the people who maintain them. Bakunin warned a state cannot direct the masses towards socialism. If equality is maintained by the state, he explained, liberty is necessarily excluded. Quote, the liberty of man consists solely in this, that he obeys natural laws because he has himself recognized them as such. This is almost, see, when you read that first part, it's about destroying institutions. Does it matter if this is what has actually happened in all of the examples? Because then you are taking the approach, like this hasn't been done correctly yet, but in an ideal situation, this this type of violent revolution would be justified. Does the affirmative have enough foundation to stand on there? Because I can't see that building a very strong case if none of it's actually played out. Well, I mean, certainly as we'll get to uh, here in a few moments, there's certainly, there's a lot of evidence that violence, once violence is begun, it is really, really hard to restrain. So I think that's going to be a big, that's going to be a barrier for, for affirmative to overcome, is how exactly do you restrain violence in, the, uh, in, this, in this effort? Okay. So, uh, and one of the people that really gets into that study of violence is a contemporary Greek scholar named Stathis Kolivas. Uh, he, uh, he's, a, he's a Yale guy. Uh, he, he wrote a book called The Logic of Violence in Civil War. And he's got a, he's got a great paper where 
If I understand the story correctly, he wrote this paper back uh, in around the year 2000, and a few years later, he let it grow into a book. Uh, but his paper is available for free, and we'll link that in the show notes. But in that paper, he has a, he's got one great uh, quote that stuck with me, where he looks at the uh, different kinds of violence, where over the decade of the 1960s worldwide, he cites some data saying roughly 3,000 people died in protest movements, but over 3 million people died in rebellions in countries. So Kolivas is looking at, he has a lot of interesting uh, analysis that may be helpful to AF, but he once again is showing what happens when once violence spreads, which is going to be more helpful to Neg. Violence can go completely out of control. And I think that's where the affirmative's practical examples are in deep trouble is because that violence did go out of control in a lot of those cases. But, and while we do have an end result, is, do the ends justify the means? It's really well, the central question. Uh, that ends justifying the means is where the next quote uh, gets into. Ethan, can you take that quote I like from this the one uh, a lot. SCP? Yeah, it says, quote, If the existing government is so awful as to thwart even a, a decent approximation of the realization of universal rights, and if the revolution presents a better prospect for doing so than the moral obligation to create the conditions for the realization of universal right speaks in favor of revolution, not against it. So this, then, I think is a great avenue. This is a good argument for affirmative to look at. Because here we're looking not so much at what could happen if we use violence, but rather how bad is the existing government. And if they're so awful that there's no way people can really enjoy their human rights, then revolution becomes accessible as a moral option to bring about a better future. I like this approach the best. I think, honestly, I don't like to say it depends because it's it's almost like ethics kind of fall in that kind of environment. But in this case, I really do think it depends how bad is that government and what that kind of puts you on a scale of political oppression. I think, I think um, Mr. Bonin was showing us one time a, a chart of oppression, or I think in this case it was a chart of freedom of speech being um, not sequestered is not the right word, but like put out or stomped out a little bit. And there was a list of countries and what types of freedom of speech. Maybe it was the press or actual freedom of speech in these locations. But it wasn't a strict yes or no. It was a rating, and it had a number out of maybe 1 to 50 or some weird range. But it just shows how ambiguous these things are. Mm. And, and what and it, that chart tried to do its, the best job that it could of drawing the line between what is considered like a yellow zone or a red zone or a green zone kind of area. And I think that's where this debate is kind of going to fall to. It may. And of course, um, well, one, one obvious example that we've not mentioned yet is the example of Nazi Germany. And I was thinking about this. There, there's one famous story I remember from, the, from World War II where uh, there's actually a Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who uh, surprised an awful lot of people because he participated in an attempt uh, a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, which may very well fit under our definition of a revolution, to take out the current government and put something else in its place. Now, the reason this surprised a lot of people is because Bonhoeffer, as a, as a Lutheran pastor, held to the traditional reading of Romans chapter 13, which says all authority is given by God. And so every government that exists has been established by God. But Bonhoeffer argued, you know, that's true in normal circumstances, but what has happened in this circumstance with Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany is that the actions of the government have actually gone against the very source of the governing authority. And so it was his moral duty in response to attempt to take out 
the the uh, government of Adolf Hitler. This is a really interesting moral approach because then that'll that'll definitely pull on where justice comes from, and that may be an entirely new form of justice that the affirmative has to contend with. But I think out of all of the things on this outline, that's the most different example is embracing God and embracing theology and and Bonhoeffer's view for revolution. And he was just one person, and I'm sure other people held a similar view to his, but obviously he stands out for, for being that person that embraces that all governments are a creation of God, or at least watched over, I guess, and managed by God, and but the morals come from him and their objective. That's a really unique perspective. I'd be interested to see if anyone's going to use that in their cases. Well, we'll find out. If anybody does, please uh, please write us. Let us know how that goes uh, in, the, in, the, in the round. We'll shout you out. Well, let, Ethan, let's shift to some negative advice. We've been focusing mostly on AF, but uh, what, what, what can negative really, uh, where, where does the negative position begin? What, what advice do we have for the neg? The neg has really, so if the affirmative pulls any examples that we were talking about before, the neg has to focus on two things. It's, the affirmative has to meet its burdens, first of all. And in this debate more than any other, it's really evident what the affirmative burdens are. You have to prove that the revolution, that it, it was a violent revolution. So you have to prove violence and revolution. I'm assuming violence won't be that difficult, but people could probably make it difficult if they wanted to. Revolution and not civil war or any other example. The American Revolution might be a, a place of battle there. And then political oppression also has to be proven. So there's two or three things there that the affirmative has to do before the negative even has to look at the argument. I think the first thing negative should look out for is any examples that don't meet the standards of the resolution so they can weed those out as fast as possible to get to the heart of the debate. And they don't have to contend with examples that don't meet the requirements that are being placed on the affirmative, which in, in this case, there's more of those than I've ever seen in any type of debate. But the first thing to look for is see if the affirmative is meeting their burdens. And if they're not, then go straight for the argument. And I think the negative is going to have to focus on future effects the most of revolution because the impacts of post-revolution are so negative-leaning. Because the affirmative might say the government is so terrible, we need to overthrow this government. And it might look true in that situation. The affirmative can certainly find examples of where it looks true. But when you look at the aftermath, was it really justified and was it really worth it? when you see the current situation, like the Haitian revolution is a perfect example. Everyone's living in poverty, but it was that better than the previous situation? Possibly, but it's hard to compare those sort of states. I mean, where of course you've got, uh, you've got, you've got contemporary poverty and you've got remembered slavery. Right. And the, the, uh, would you rather, I mean, that, that of course raised the question, would you rather be poor and free? I would rather be poor and free. Well, and in which case, perhaps the Haitian Revolution was was a was a positive step. But uh, on the negative, I think uh, the value distinction becomes is is pretty clear. Uh, this is probably not going to be one of those debates where both teams advocate the same value and slight shades on their value. I don't like those debates. No, they're not fun. I'd no. much rather have strong clash and strong argumentation. Uh, but I would I would probably advise negative to go with some pretty standard values, perhaps order, authority, a utilitarian sense of justice, and certainly a also looking at human dignity, uh, because all of those are going to be already oriented to focus on the downsides of revolution and what happens when violence enters the political equation. I like how you put personalism on the outline, because I know you were, you were really into this book about personalism a while ago. Would you do us the honors of explaining what personalism means as a more modern way of looking at the world? I think you said something about how we're 
objective beings experiencing the world subjectively or something along those lines? Yeah, that, that, that's a key piece of it. I, I'll, I'll speak to it briefly. I don't want to go too deep into this because at some point it, personalism needs its own LD episode on our show. Uh, but listeners, we'll also link this in the show notes. Uh, I wrote a book review of Juan Manuel Burgos's, what is per, or his book, Introduction to Personalism. Uh, and that, that's a, it's, that contains a helpful summary of personalism. But personalism, in brief, is a philosophical movement that happens across 20th century thinkers to attempt to uh, really establish the primacy and the value of the human person as the foundation for philosophy. So rather than philosophy being founded on critique and, and really on what has gone wrong or what is bad thinking or founding philosophy on metaphysical reasoning, Personalism says the first thing is an axiom, uh, a, a, a statement that does not require prior proof, is that the human person is of value and is of great dignity. And that, that human person has certain qualities that has inherent rights, inherent worth. The human person is dialogical. And that then human society must then is, is all about being ethically oriented in relationship to the person and to persons. So beginning with human dignity as a personalist approach really grounds our arguments to say, really, we're beginning from sort of almost a Kantian perspective that every individual matters. And if the suffering that's going to occur, or if, if the action that's going to occur is premised on the suffering of persons, then that is ethically untenable which is really going to give a very strong case, I think, to neg from if we uh, embrace that kind of perspective. That would be an interesting perspective. It would be. I, I really think the neg's biggest arguments, some of their best arguments, is going to focus on the uncontrollability of violence. And the fact that no matter what AF might say, they cannot guarantee a more just government that actually results in peace and economic stability after the revolution. This is one of your favorite things in debate is to say we cannot predict the future. I know no, whenever we're writing we cases and we try to make an argument like this and put it in our case, the first thing we hear is we cannot predict the future. And then we get many examples of when people try to predict the future and cannot. Well, in this case, I think... Uh, uh, the SCP, once again, has a really good bit for this. Uh, it writes, Revolutionary wars present a greater risk of literal anarchy with all of the threats to human rights and well-beings that this usually entails. Because revolutionaries, even when they succeed in defeating the regime, may not yet have, and in some cases may never develop, the capacity to impose order. In that sense, the stakes are often higher in revolutionary wars and the traditional likelihood of success requirement of just war theory may be harder to satisfy. The only thing I can see the affirmative coming back with is, so what do we do then when people are being oppressed? And then the negative does likely have to answer with something like civil disobedience using the Jim Crow example or Gandhi's example. And then the affirmative's last last leg to stand on there, I'm, I'm guessing, would be the pragmatism of that and how that may not work in all situations. And those are unique examples that worked out well, but they're not nearly as practical as, um, as violent revolution is, which again, you can, I can see this argument, just like a lot of debates are, funneling down to what works and what doesn't work rather than what's just and what isn't just. And I really don't like it when that happens. And I'd like I'd, the best, or some of the advice that I would offer to debaters from my perspective is keep focusing on the justice because the justice is what's important, even though I know that a lot of debates end up funneling down to what works and what doesn't. No, that's, 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 that's very true. That is where debaters tend to go with. And that's another place where the NEG has uh, really good ground to go on. 
the SCP actually pulls from a 2006 book by uh, Kalavos, the guy I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, writing that revolutionary conflicts are often especially brutal because the lines between combatants and non-combatants, or civilians, tend to be blurred. What often happens is that your revolutionary group may say, oh, we are actually only fighting the army. But what actually happens is that revolutionary groups end up burning farms, destroying villages, raping and pillaging their way across the countryside. So the actual effects of the revolution are incredibly harmful to the people which the revolutionaries claim to be representing. Specific examples of that are going to be silver bullets to affirmative arguments. I can't see a value structure that would be able to stand against the atrocities that were committed at as a result of uncontrolled violence. One good source of those specific examples will require some hunting, uh, but uh, there's a great book called The Fate of Africa. It's a thousand-page tome that is a, it's, but it's incredibly readable that is looking at the history of Africa over the past century. And debaters, if you put the effort in and just skim through the book, you don't have to read the whole thing to find the information you need, but if you skim through the book or make good use of the index, you'll quickly find that the African continent has had dozens, if not hundreds, of different revolutions that follow this exact pattern. So that kind of information does exist, and it is the sad tragedy of Africa over the past hundred years to have had lots and lots of these kind of revolutionary moments. Have you read this book, this entire book? I had to take a class where that was the book for the class. So I read that over about six months. An entire thousand-page book on, on failed revolution, or rather extremely violent revolutions. I, I distinctly remember one moment towards the end of the class where I asked the professor, where, when does it get better? And he just looked at me and said, nope, it does not get better. What's uh, the res, listeners? If you're planning to read this book, have fun with that. Thousand pages right there. Well, uh, that's, that, that's, that's history. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, Ethan, what about the, uh, are, are there any other uh, arguments that Neg has access to? I think the most important ones that come to mind are questions on the affirmative burden as a first, as just a way to weed out examples that don't belong where they are. And the uncontrollability of violence, I'd say, I would completely agree with you, is the strongest argument. But I would add to that, look for specific examples and almost build that into the narrative that your case is telling about. Because this, this isn't storytelling, but it's also not de to detach yourself completely from violence and nonviolence in a way that we can't feel how terrible violence is. The negative's strongest point is to show that violence is intended to harm other people, and that's, that is the core intention of violence. And even if the quote that we read earlier says that violence is intended to be against institutions, the intentions of that don't play out mm -hmm. in what actually is. So the negative's strongest sort of mindset would be to dive into what violence actually is, regardless of what it says it is, which is more of what the affirmative is advocating for, the theory of violence, and, and detaching as much as possible for the sake of bringing humanity back up to where it should be in a higher ethical standard. Negative has to dive into the nose-on-the-ground perspective, saying that, no, this is what violence is, this is what it looks like, and it's bad, and it should not ever be used. Well, and there's at least a couple other arguments that Neg really can, can also pull on, I think. Um, Kolovos, in the, uh, the, the paper that I mentioned earlier, he uh, had a fascinating section where he argued this is true of both Civil War participants and of revolutionaries, 
Uh, he, has, he looks at their mixed motives, and he looks at the difference that often happens between what people say they are fighting for and what they are actually fighting for. They might say they're driven by some noble cause. Perhaps we're going to liberate this oppressed group of people. But he argues what they're, what people, he shows that in a variety of cases, what people are actually motivated by is the ability to denounce other people for wrongdoings, to seize property, or to get revenge. So what matters more here, the cause or the effect? Well, here we might be, uh, I think, really the, uh, the, the, the actual, I don't know if I would look at it through a cause or effect lens there so much as if we're going back to consider the affirmative argument that this is a just response, but rather, instead of it being a just response, what if, ha what if many of our revolutionaries are lying about why they are part of the revolution? That's a crazy, that's a good theory, but it's a crazy way to think about it as well. That's insane. Uh, well, that's where I found Kali Voss's evidence really interesting. He cited several people uh, who, who literally said, oh, yeah, I joined this revolution so that I could steal my neighbor's house. Well, thanks for admitting <laughs> to it, at least. <laughs> yep, yep. But that really, I mean, at that point, the, uh, the, the justice of the revolutionary is really called into question. So that, that may be, I think that could be an interesting negative approach to take. Thievery is bad. It's yes. Not Yes, thievery is bad. I'm glad we can affirm that, Ethan. Now, the uh, one other thing that the NEG certainly can look at, and I, I don't know how persuasive this would be in an actual NSDA tournament, uh, but you certainly could look at that uh, the vast majority of philosophers over the last 2,500 years have rejected even the idea that violent revolution could be justified. Uh, this comes up in St. Augustine's book, The City of God, in Aquinas's Summa Theologica. Uh, a French philosopher, I'm sorry, a Spanish philosopher named Suarez uh, addressed it. Thomas Hobbes addressed it. All of these guys and many more said, no, there is no way that violent revolution is ever justifiable. And I think I can see where they're coming from. I think they're looking at a really ideal view of the world where things can be solved through diplomacy or through any other means, civil disobedience. But the negative strategy here would be to plug straight into the statistics about, or not even the statistics, just how do these things actually play out? Because you can have two parties diplomatically figuring something out, but when you really look at the situations at hand, sorry, this is affirmative. I mean, the affirmative would have to look at this, my bad, is that do can things really be solved without violence? Like maybe in theory they shouldn't be, but using any of your examples, could, if you wanted to take the American Revolution, could the colonists have come to terms with, with England? Or could the Haitians have come to terms with the, with the French through any other means rather than violence? And would the longer drawn out period be justified to save all of those lives if eventually an end result could have been had? Because uh, debate can't seem to really solve everything that the world has to offer. And as far as a pragmatic perspective is is concerned. That's why we have militaries and defense systems and all of these things. Well, I think uh, there, there's a lot there. I'll speak to just a bit of it. Um, I think there's, there, there's interesting uh, evidence from later in time as to what could, uh, what could have been uh, with the American Revolution and its relationship to Great Britain, where certainly the, the American colonists tried peaceful negotiations in a sense. There were several emissaries sent to King George III to try and get him to agree to let the colonies not pay their taxes. Well, eventually, of course, we have the Revolutionary War. What's really interesting is that over the following 100, 150 years, each time that the American Revolution sort of terrified the English crown. And every other time you have a group, you have a country that England ruled over, say, we want to be our own, 
Well, England eventually kind of lets them go. And they sort of, they, instead of, uh, they don't let them go completely. They form what's called the British Commonwealth. That's where Canada is, that's what Canada's part of. And as part of that, they're still loosely tied to the British crown, but they're also governing themselves. So it's possible that given a different kind of, a different king than George III, America might have been in some version of that, given a different kind of connection. So again, it depends on the context of each situation. That's fair. It does. And it once again ties right back to, as you said earlier, which definition of justice are we talking about? What, what do you think of Kant's view on revolution? On your, it was the third point on our last page of the outline. You had something about his denial that revolution can ever be justified. Uh, yeah, that's part of what uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy talks about, uh, two different arguments. There's the undue risk argument that a lot of our violence points and our anarchy points fit under. And then there's also this thing called the conceptual argument, where the conceptual argument uh, is looking at Kant's, it's part of Kant's denial. Uh, okay, this reads, point one, all human beings are indefeasibly obligated to contribute to getting out of and staying out of a condition in which universal right cannot be realized. Two, universal right can only be realized where government exists and is recognized as authoritative. Three, to revolt is both to try to destroy the existing government and to deny its authority, and therefore, four, revolution can never be justified. Now, now, since we're almost at the end of the episode, I've probably already done this half a dozen times, I'm going to unveil the fact that I'm squarely leaning neg on this resolution. Uh, and this argument is honestly part of why, because I do think government is necessary for creating a framework within which human flourishing can happen. And revolution is attempting to change the framework, but in doing that, it's not able to, it's never able to control all the variables. And what kind of, sorry, go on, go well, on. And, and that with thought. that change of variables, what we end up having is a massive increase in human suffering. Hmm. And it takes a lot longer. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it takes a huge amount of time for a country that has gone through a revolution to really get back to square one where people can actually live their lives well. What kind of argument is he making here? I'm just interested because we've been doing logic class for all of 10th oh. grade. This looks... Um, I th at first, I thought pure hypothetical or epikyrema. Now I'm thinking, I don't know. We were just studying um, dilemmas. I'm just going to call it a Kantian argument, and and we'll just leave it leave, at that. Leave it at that, because Kant is he is perhaps the most logical philosopher in the German tradition, and yeah, let's just let's just leave it at that. We I'm can, very we can... happy leaving it at that because I've solved plenty of logic problems today. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well. Uh, Ethan, what, uh, what, any closing thoughts for, our, for our, our friends debating at Nationals? I think all of you are very lucky to have this resolution. I think it's an amazing resolution, and although AF may have a little bit of trouble, just remember, embrace your side. Definitions are everything in this debate. Make sure your examples fit the terms of the round. Affirmative fully embraces its burden, and negative has good questions to come back with and cross-examination. I think the two biggest parts of this debate are going to be the affirmative's constructive, being careful to stay within the terms, and clearly defining the terms of the round so that we don't end up with a huge definitions debate. And the negative's cross-examination of the affirmative is going to be pure clash and it's going to be amazing I, I can't wait to watch this if this ever makes it onto youtube which i'm sure it will but this should not be a deep critical theory or postmodern kind of 
debate or K debate, I think this is a really good resolution to take into the round and use for educational purposes because there is so much good material from so many different people, philosophers, and pragmatic examples as well. It all fits together extremely well. Take full advantage of this educational opportunity and good luck at nationals. Good luck, ladies and gentlemen, from uh, us here at What's the Res. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. I'm joined today by my co-host, Ethan Delves. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com, or you can follow us at whatstheres underscore on Twitter or on Instagram. We wish you the best of luck, and uh, we hope that we will see you at uh, Nationals in 2020. And until next time... Everyone, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. We'll see you next time.